be seated. If you are an elementary aged person, you can uh, head out these front doors right here and go do your classes. If, uh, if you're a middle school aged person, you can head right out the back and follow those two monkeys who are running as fast as they can. So even though I've told one of them, which is my son, don't run in church, but I guess you want to run to Jesus in church. That's a good thing, right? So that's always okay. See how I did that? I kind of flipped that to make it. All right, anyway. So we are beginning Advent, and um, <clears throat> did I, you think Trevor and I did a good job decorating these trees? We uh, did not decorate them, so we called in reinforcements because our capacity to decorate is, well, it's not there. So we, uh, <clears throat> we could set the tree up, though, and fluff it, and that was as far as we got. Uh, Meredith, she gets all the, uh, all the credit for, for the beautiful tree out front in both these trees, so um, if you want to thank somebody, find her and thank her. Uh, I was thinking of uh, letting the lie go that, that we, Treb and I, had managed to decorate it, but when your pastor does that, it's bad. So we, uh, we opted not to do that. But today we will start uh, Advent. And like I mentioned before, Advent really means coming. And so it, it looked from the passage we're going to be in today, which is Isaiah chapter 9, that was looking forward to the coming Messiah. We now stand, as you hear us talk about quite a bit, but we're now in between the Advents. We're in between his first coming, which we look back to, and his second coming, which we look forward to. And so, if you will, uh, jump with me to Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, let's pray and get, get into the text here. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you're faithful, that when you say that you're coming to rescue us, that you came that when you say that you're coming again, that you are coming again. Every bit of all of our hopes hangs on who you are and your faithfulness, your capacity, your adequacy, because we lack everything that we need to save ourselves. We lack everything that we need to sustain ourselves, to grow ourselves in godliness. Today, we're going to look at the reality that you are a wonderful counselor, that we lack all that we need even to know how to walk in grace and truth in this life. I thank you that you are a God of grace who lavishes unmerited favor on his children. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came. We thank you that he's coming again. Help us in wisdom and in grace and in power learn how to walk rightly until he returns. Help us understand what this text is teaching. Would you, in the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to your word. I pray for every mind and heart in here that you would teach each of us what you want us to know. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in the risen name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So we're in Isaiah chapter 9. Which, of course, uh, <clears throat> there's eight chapters before that, so we're not going to read those right now. But Isaiah is a massive, um, I've heard it called the Romans of the Old Testament, which is very true. Um, it's a massive book. It's just size-wise, but it's massive theologically. And it's, it's an incredible book, and Isaiah was an amazing prophet. And the, the context of this is that he's, he's discussing with, with, uh, with King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, and the kingdoms have already split, and... And there's all these wars going on and, and they're seeking counselors and there's, there's factions forming and, and 
and the nation of Israel is attacking the nation of Judah, and it's a terrible time. And in, in 819, right before nine starts, he says, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? And then it says, to the law and the testimony, go to those things. If they do not speak according to his word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward and curse. They will curse their king and their God. And he's, it's this, he's imploring Ahaz and, and, and Judah to, to not seek the things that the world was seeking to find counsel and guidance. And then he says in the beginning of, of chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. And in the past, he humbled the land of uh, Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. And then it says, which is repeated in the, in the Gospels, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. This is looking forward to this new hope. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a, lo- a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. And because it's in here, we're going to read it. Verse 4 says, because this is in the context of war. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. War will end. And verse six says this, for unto us a child is born. This incredible contrast between war and kings and kingdoms, this little child, a baby, an infant is born. And unto us a son is given and the government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. There's a whole lot in there that we're not going to jump into. But just to give you the context of where this comes from, this is this promise of someone who is coming, not a philosophy, not a new government, but a person. You see that there is a person, a child, a son, and the government rests on his shoulders. See, we put our hopes in our governmental systems to save us. The hope is going to be in a person, and he will run the governance. And he has a name. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Today, we're going to look at that first part. Wonderful counselor. Next week, Treb is going to get in. He's going to kind of combine mighty God and everlasting father and look into some of the, the, the nature of the incarnation. And then in, in uh, three weeks, we're going to go into uh, look at Prince of Peace and then we'll have on the 23rd hour, our Christmas service. But right now, we're just going to delve into the reality that the Messiah, his name is Wonderful Counselor. And what does that mean? Well, uh, anybody here who doesn't know Mike Fox should know him because he's wonderful. And he's but he's a super fun person to have because he's literally an Old Testament scholar. And so it's, uh, instead of me having to read for 12 hours, I just call Mike. And so it makes it a lot easier. And he was, he was helping me uh, get a, a handle on some of this passage. And I was asking him about, you know, the, the, what, 
when it says called or this naming, this wonderful counselor, this. And he said, well, that's, that's, that's the language of royalty. That's how they would announce kings in that time. They would announce of, of, of the king of Assyria or something. He's the king of kings and the lord of the nations and all these things. And so this is royal language uh, announcing a king, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So that this Messiah is going to be a, a, a king. So you can see where the, the people in the New Testament have this idea that Man, he's coming and the government on his shoulders and he's, he's coming to win. He's coming to fight. He's coming to free us. And of course he is, but not in the way that everybody thought he was. But he's called Wonderful Counselor. So you look up the, the word wonderful and, and you think, well, it makes somebody full of wonder. Like it's a wonderful life. If you haven't ever seen that movie, please just watch it. But you know what I mean? It's like excellent, great, marvelous, all these things which are, which are synonyms with it. But it's, it's, it's that which causes one to be filled with wonder or admiration when you look at something and, and you uh, wonder is this, uh, is this capacity to engage the emotions in something but, but not, not release reason in the process. You don't just fly off into non-thinking ecstasy, but you, you are fully engaged as a human when you are in wonder because you're engaging your emotions, you're engaging your intellect. But all language has limitations. And so this word wonderful, I'm going to take a, a little jump. You're welcome to come with me into a book that doesn't really fit into the context of what we're looking at here. But if you go back to the book of Judges, which is not a book of hope, it's actually a very, very sad book. Um, you just see in Judges, you get a beautiful picture of what happens when men and women and people get to just do what they want. It's a very sad book. And in this course, the cycle of judges, Israel would fall into uh, trouble. And then the Lord would send a, a, a judge to come and free them. And in chapter 13, the Israelites are, are uh, in the hands of the Philistines. And there's a man named Manoah. And the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, comes and speaks to his wife and says, uh, you've been sterile and childless, but you're going to have a son. So Manoah goes and says, hey, I got to talk to the guy now. And the, uh, the angel of the Lord comes back and he tells Manoah that, listen, you're going to have this son and, and he's going to have, the, you're not supposed to cut his hair and he's not supposed to drink wine and he's going to have this Nazarite vow. And so Manoah in verse 15 comes up and says to the angel of the Lord, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you, which is just what, what, what they did, I guess. And then the angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord, to, to Yahweh. For Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. He didn't know who it was. So far were they separated from their roots. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, well, what is your name? If I'm going to offer it to you, I need to know your name. So that we may honor you when your word comes true. And he replied, why do you ask my name? This is in verse 18. It is wonderful. Or it is beyond understanding. Or it is indescribable. He says, why do you ask my name, Manoah? You can't understand it. It's beyond you. It's indescribable. It's beyond understanding. So that when we look at, it's the same word in Isaiah when it says wonderful. It really means indescribable, beyond understanding. And when you... Look at who Jesus is. 
For us looking back, see, we have this entire context of the incarnate Jesus that we get from the Gospels. Here in Isaiah's time, they're looking forward to this God that they know and that they love and that they need, but they don't have near the fullness of the revelation that we have now. But they know and consider him to be beyond understanding, indescribable. I mean, we live in a time where we don't even hardly confess that there isn't something that we can possibly know, right? Our, the, the common thread in, in society is we just, we just haven't figured it out yet. Not that there isn't something that we can't comprehend, right? That's sort of insulting to humans. We're like, no, we're... But you see, for us to say that there's something that we can't understand, that in and of itself sets this line in the sand that says, I have a limit. There is something that I am incapable of understanding. I mean, it's like a, you, you've heard like dogs and cats, like my dog, not that we're dogs and God's a pet owner, but the, it breaks down. But the analogy being that my dog, Bella, our fat old yellow lab, she, she, she loves us because we feed her and the kids play with her and, and we don't brush her enough. But she, she comes in and she knows that I feed her. Um, uh, she knows that I get mad when she steals a pancake off the table. Uh, or an entire loaf of bread from the pantry and eats it in the yard. Uh, she knows that if she does certain things, she gets in trouble. Uh, she knows she needs something. She can bark. She comes up. And we have this great relationship. Uh, she does not understand uh, what it means to file taxes. Like, she doesn't know why I have to pay a mortgage. She doesn't know. Um, she has no concept of, of, of what we're studying in the Bible. That she can't read, right? It's, it's, it's just beyond her. There are things about God that are beyond our capacity to understand. And it's important that we set that line in the sand because that's who he is. See, there's a great difference between the created and the creator, uh, an indescribable difference. So that when Paul is writing to the Colossians and he says about Jesus that he is the image, this is in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him, Jesus, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Those are crazy words to just say about a Galilean carpenter unless they are true, and Jesus is not just merely a man, but is God incarnate. The Messiah, he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is beyond our understanding. He is indescribable. And it's necessary that we have this concept of God, understanding that there's so much about him. Just what's been revealed in the Bible is beyond what any person can ever learn in 100,000 lifetimes. And yet there is more about him that we will never understand. He is wonderful. Then also says that he is a counselor, right? So in the context of royalty of a king, like the, the proverb says, uh, where, where there is no vision, the people will perish. But in, in many counselors, there's victory. This idea that 
a king would have counsel around him, right? I mean, if any of you have seen the Lord of the Rings, you have this guy who's the king of Rohan, I can't remember his name. And he's there and he has this, he's supposed to be this king and he's supposed to be calling all these troops to come help and fight the bad guys. And, but there's this counselor who has worm tongue and he has infected him with lies. And he has literally darkened his vision, can't see what he's supposed to do. And of course, Gandalf comes in and smacks him with his staff or whatever and he falls back and his eyes get clear and he becomes a king again. But this idea that he has a counselor, but he has a, an evil counselor that had led him astray and led him into darkness. Well, God doesn't need a counselor. And we know this because if you keep reading in Isaiah, if you'll jump with me to chapter 44, verse 6. I'm sure a lot of things happen between 9 and 44, which I encourage you to read this week. Um, I mean, just, just sit down and read it. It's not going to hurt you. So... If you, if you read 60, all, all of Isaiah this week, I will give you a, a, a candy cane next Sunday. So. so in Isaiah 44, verse 6, it says this. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and the last. Does that sound familiar? Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay outside before me or lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. I mean, this is the Lord. He's looking at it. He's saying, um, excuse me, I'm the first and the last. I'm the only God that there is. There isn't another one. So who is like me? Whoever says he's like me, well, let him come before me and lay out before me how everything happened in the past. And then I want him to tell me what all is going to happen in the future. Go ahead, tell me what's going to happen tomorrow. I'll wait. Do not tremble, it says in verse 8. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. That's strong language right? The Lord is not messing around. Listen to that. That is who we need God to be, who he really is. There is no God besides me. I know not one. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Turn with me back to uh, chapter 40, verse 12. This is the incredible, do read chapter 40 this week, no candy cane, but, um, Read Isaiah chapter 40. It's, it's this uh, wonderful chapter of God comforting his people and with who he is. It's a massive, beautiful picture of the majesty of God. It's marvelous. But he says in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? So it's God saying, with my hand breadth, I'm going to measure the universe. We don't even know how big the universe is. Like we can't see it all. We build telescopes and we look and we think and we try to figure out and look at redshift and all these things, how light works. And God's saying, yeah, with the breadth of my, who, who's measured out the waters in the earth in the hollow of his hand or, or by the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who sell the dust of the earth in a basket or weigh the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance? Look at verse 13. 
Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? You see this rhetoric from the Lord? He's saying, listen, excuse me, you didn't teach me anything. I don't need you. I want you. I don't have to learn from you. No one taught me the right way. I am the right way. But look at verse 11, because before he says all this, look what he says. Before he sort of, it's kind of like if you're a dad, there comes a point in your kid's life where you sit him down. This happened with our, with our it's happened with all of our boys, not so much our girl. Where when they're like five, they have the, you can't talk to mommy that way speech from daddy. And it's the, uh, where you sit them down and you say, son, I love you. You can't talk to your mother that way because she's my wife. I chose her before you got here. She'll be here after you leave. And if you talk to her like that again, you'll be gone too. And you just set, you just set this thing and you're like, you don't, nope, you don't talk to mama that way. And it's kind of the Lord setting this, reminding them, excuse me, who has understood my mind and instructed me as my counselor? But right before that in verse 11, look at what he says. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm. Isn't that a tender picture? A lamb is a baby sheep. And then he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have younger. You might say he, he gently leads those who are nursing young God is this God, like, there's hardly a more vulnerable picture than a, 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 a woman nursing her baby, right? And yet he says he gently leads those. Why? Because they're really tired. Because being a mom is hard. Because having little children take care of is hard. Because life is hard. He carries them close to his heart, and he gently leads those who have young who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Don't you want a counselor who doesn't need to ask someone else for advice? God does not sit there and say, oh man, I'm really stumped, guys. I don't know what to do on this one. I'm just, <clears throat> give me a breather. I'm gonna take a minute. I'm just, I, you asked me a question that I, I mean, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? I don't know, guys. I'm gonna have to think about that for a second. Which, by the way, is an aside, is the, one of the dumbest questions anybody can ever ask. Uh, but, I mean, just philosophically or even just the reality that God can make a rock. But I, I need a God who is beyond my comprehension, who is indescribable in human terms. And yet I need this God who is approachable. So it turns me to Psalm 32 and in this psalm, I just, I love the psalms. I just can't get enough of them. I mean, I probably read them too much. I shouldn't say that, but I, like I read them instead of other things. So I guess that's okay. It's still the word of God. So it is in the middle of the Bible for a reason, right? So he says in Psalm 32, and a part of the context of this is uh, you know, the, the blessing of those whose sins are forgiven and that he, when he acknowledged his sin to the Lord, um, he forgave the guilt of his sin not just a New Testament concept. There, in verse six, it says, therefore, let everyone who is godly 
Pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach. And think about a flood. Then it says, you are my hiding place and you will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And this is the Lord's response to David here in verse eight. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do you have this incredible response of David coming to the Lord? He confesses his sin before him. He proclaims that he's his hiding place. And then the Lord's response is that I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. And then comes a warning in verse nine. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but that must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Why does a horse and a mule need a, why do you have to stick a bit in its mouth? And because they're stubborn, you don't just walk up to the mule and say, come on, mule, let's go. They, you, you have to stick a thing in their mouth that hurts and pull them along. He's saying, don't, don't be like them that have to be controlled by a bit and bridle. But many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love in verse 10 surrounds the man who trusts in him. In verse 11, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Isn't that an incredible invitation? That in this advent, right, this coming, and in Isaiah they're looking entirely forward to this coming Jesus, this coming Messiah, And that we now look back at Christ who came and all that he accomplished. The life, we looked at last week, what he accomplished on the cross and his death, what he accomplished in the resurrection, his his ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now we're in this age of the church awaiting his second coming. We have this incredible invitation that when we come to the Lord, that he will instruct us and teach us and counsel us in the way we should go. Um, An old guy, A.H. Ironside, wrote a wonderful little commentary on Isaiah. And in it, he says this. He says, his name is wonderful because he himself is wonderful and also because of the work which he accomplished. He is called counselor because he comes to us as the revealer of the Father's will. That is what is implied in his divine title, the word. It is by the word that God makes known his mind. The Lord Jesus, who was with the Father from the beginning, came into the scene to make God known. And so in him, the Father has spoken out all that is in his heart. Isn't that a wonderful thought? His words make known to us the path of life and show us the only way for a pilgrim people to travel through a world of sin. As the eternal word, he is the revealer of the mind and heart of God. Come to earth, not only to show us the way to the Father, but to empower us so that we may walk in a manner well-pleasing to the one who has redeemed us. Man. His words make known to us the path of life and show us the only way for a pilgrim people to travel through a world of sin. Have you ever not known what to do? Um, I, I feel like that every day. <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't know what to do. Uh, be it with, uh, there's just a whole bunch of circumstances. 
Some of those are little things. I don't know how to fix a broken pipe. I don't know. And, and there, there are no instructions, I don't think, in here on fixing a broken pipe. But there are instructions on being wise. There are instructions in the Proverbs for the skill of living. If I don't know how to fix a pipe, uh, I can find someone who does. I can ask for help. That's all in there. I can be humble and say I don't know. That's a start. There are other questions in life that are not so easy. You have a, how do I walk through this sad phase in life? Whatever it is that could be making you sad. There's a whole bunch of things that can make people sad. Loss makes us sad. Transition makes us sad. Death makes us sad. Um, Watching a person we love go through a difficult time makes us sad. How do I walk through that well? How How do I manage my finances? How do I get through Christmas without going over budget? How do I enjoy this holiday season when it caused me so much pain in the past? How do I walk through this difficulty with my grown children? How do I manage the tension between me and my my daughter-in-law? How do I... Oh, there's a lot of questions, right? We have a wonderful, indescribable counselor who needs to ask no questions. He needs no references. And he has offered to instruct us in the way we should go. So go to him. It's actually not that complicated. Spend time in the word. If you are in a season in your life where you have lots and lots of questions, I want you to consume the word like crazy. It's like when you're sick, what do they always say? Drink plenty of fluids, right? Because if you get dehydrated, you can't fight whatever it is you're fighting. Drink from the well of the word. I mean, open up the fire hose and just go for it. If you, what if you imagine if you uh, spent an hour a day reading the Bible? I'm not telling you to put numbers on things. I'm just saying like, do something crazy like that to say, I'm going through a really difficult time. So I'm going to read a whole bunch of the Bible. Start in the Psalms. Just read the whole thing. There's 150 chapters. You probably won't get a whole, maybe by the time you get done, you'll be done with your troubles, but you will have learned something. Open up the gospels. See how Jesus lived. Open up the New Testament. Read the epistles. See how uh, Paul and and Peter and John and and others instructed the church how to live. Open up uh, the Old Testament and and, and read a story of God's faithfulness. uh, Read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, where where we see how God is faithful to a king. Open up the book of Judges and, and, and engage yourself in the sorrow of what happens when Open up the book of Genesis and see how the Lord began this story. Look at the book of Exodus and see how faithful he was to bring his people out. Just read the thing constantly and always and seek his counsel and seek his face. I'm not saying that you will necessarily get an answer to your question. Because remember, the answer to the question in Isaiah is a person. It wasn't a government. It was a son And that is the answer to all of our questions. When we go to the wonderful counselor, we go to Jesus, the son of God, and we get him. And he makes all of our questions sometimes not seem all that important because he answers them with himself. This table that we celebrate over here 
is an amazing picture of the reality of what Jesus did. This is not a denominational table, meaning that I don't care if you're a Lutheran or a Methodist or an Episcopalian. This is for anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ to come and share in this sacrament, this holy thing that we do, that he has commanded us to do. It is not a place of division. It is not a place where we get upset about whether or not we dunk or pour or whatever. We do it by manner of intinction where you take the bread and we're going to get some bread and you're going to dip it in the cup and you're going to eat it. The point of this table is that it is a representation of our faithfulness to Jesus. That on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. That as he took the cup and he poured the wine, he said, this is the, my blood poured out for you. It is the new covenant. Take and drink it. That every time that you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do so in remembrance of me until when? Until his advent until his coming. So I invite you to this table. It is not just bread. It is not just grape juice. It is a symbol of us coming to the Lord Jesus. Come to your counselor. Confess your sin before him. Do not come lightly to this table and come and enjoy this beautiful picture of his body broken for our sin, of his blood poured out in a new covenant for us for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to pray, and while I do, would the servers please come down. Lord Jesus, our wonderful counselor, we thank you for the gift of communion. Help us to walk with you. Help us to trust you, to lay our heart before you, and to enjoy the beauty of the sacrament. In your risen name we pray. Amen.